Good morning, everyone, and boys and girls. It's lovely to see you this morning. I'm glad your student tea went very well yesterday. That was great. Well, our theme today is back to another difficult one. We're talking about wealth, finance, justice, and poverty. And our scriptures are a little perplexing and cause us this morning to need to tussle them out in our minds to ascertain what they mean for us. Nevertheless, God loves us and he gives us his Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And he, as always, is to be praised. So let's start by praising him. Let me read to you the very first three verses of Psalm 113. These are verses that will be very well known to you. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. As usual, I'm going to lead us in corporate prayer, our opening prayer for today. And at the end, I'll ask you if you'd like to join me in saying the Lord's Prayer with me together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've just sung about freedom and justice. And Lord, we just thank you that we can gather together today as one expression of your son's body in freedom. Thank you, Lord. We gather too to praise and honor your name, Heavenly Father, and to learn from your word. There are many things in this world that we live in that are complex and that puzzle us. And sometimes when we look at your word, it puzzles us too. Please be patient with us when we are perplexed. Please enlighten us, give us knowledge and understanding and help us to have courage to live by your standards. Your word says that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. And sometimes we do find it hard to understand, but we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help us and to teach us. We confess that we would like our lives to be black and white. How easy that would be without difficult decisions to make. We would love to hand over all responsibility to you, but you ask us to think for ourselves in the light of what you teach us. Thank you, Lord, for dealing with the realities of life. We praise you, Jesus, for not living in an ivory tower when you walked this earth. You walked in this world, dealing with this world's problems. You knew good from bad, and you teach us good from bad. Thank you that you love each and every one of us, and that you accept each and every one of us, warts and all. Thank you that you are the God of the second chance. Thank you this morning for the comfort of knowing that you are our Heavenly Father. And to you, we now pray our familiar community prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
Francis has already mentioned that the passages are quite difficult and uh, I have difficulty reading them as well for understanding any rate. So here goes, so you can all listen very carefully and see if you can understand them. The first one's from Amos, uh, chapter 8, 4 to 7. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will this new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale. We will make an ephah small and a shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And then from the New Testament in Luke, the parable of the dishonest manager, Luke chapter 16. (coughs) Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people will welcome me into their homes. So summoning his uh, his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first How much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Amen. My sermon title for today is just one word, perplexing. Because that's just what these two texts that Barbara's just read to us are. The one seems to be a really strongly worded prophecy, absolutely no nonsense. 
those who oppress the poor for financial gain using dishonest, tra dishonest trading practices will receive the wrath of God. And the other is a parable which seems to praise a manager for his version of dishonest trading practices for selfish gain. How do these at first sight seemingly contradictory texts provide us with a coherent message that we can bring into our own time? That's what we're going to try and tussle out between us today. During September, the lectionary roots materials ask us to see a message from the Old Testament to carry it then into what Luke says in his gospel in the New Testament and then to try and apply it to our present day, 2013. Having done a little bit of mental tussling myself this week, I've decided that really all I can do with these texts for you today is to present to you what my studies have shown about these texts I'll start with Amos, and then I'll go into Luke. And then, with a few scriptures that will be very familiar to you at the end of my service sermon, I will invite you to come to your own conclusion about what God wants you to do with the very personal issue before us today about how we use our worldly wealth. I think God speaks to us each differently about what our financial priorities should be. And what I perceived from studying these texts was that there are no hard and fast rules. There are no this is how you do it guidance. There are just parameters of acceptable behavior from which we each form our own attitudes as to how we spend our money before God. It's all a matter of focus. We need to keep our focus on God and not make an idol out of gaining wealth. So here we are in Amos. In the list of good bedtime reading, this doesn't even make it to bottom place. Amos comes in the book of minor prophet, books of the minor prophets and it is not a pleasant read. It's especially not a pleasant read if you read any of the commentaries because they explain some of the things that are not immediately obvious from the wording within the text itself. Its only redeeming feature is that at the end it says Israel will not be entirely destroyed, there will be a remnant left, and the remnant will eventually be restored. Amos was a prophet he was a contemporary of Hosea, and the commentators said, where Hosea pleaded, Amos simply thundered. Hosea talked about God's mercy and love for the sinner. Amos just thundered about their sin and how angry God was about it particularly sins perpetrated against the poor and the defenseless in their society, sins against humanity in all the terrible forms, and they were terrible forms that they took at that time. The keynote instruction coming through Amos' thundering prophecies was a cry from God to act justly. Amos was actually not the type of character you'd have expected God to have sent with that message. He was not a priest like Jeremiah. 
and he was not a man of the court like Isaiah. He told his listeners he was just a shepherd and he also looked after sycamore fig trees. The commentators, however, suggest that he must have had some sort of education, more than a shepherd and a looker-afterer of trees, because he knew an awful lot about the countries round about Israel at the time. At the time, the land of Israel was divided into two. It was a divided kingdom. There was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Amos came from Tekoa in Judah. And this was the best map, I hope you can see it, that I could find. And you can see Tekoa there somewhere, I think, to the right of the Salt Sea, as it's called there. It was about six miles from Bethlehem, and it was in the southern kingdom. However, Amos was sent to the northern kingdom, not terribly far away. He was sent to a place called Bethel, which you can see just a bit further north and to the west of Gilgal. Israel, the northern kingdom, was a prosperous nation at the time. It was politically at peace. Life was good. Here's the adjectives that the commentators gave for the nation of Israel at the time. Proud, smug, decadent, and complacent. They lived in luxurious dwellings, by and large. And they thought if they went through the motions of doing the sacrifices, paying their tithes, religious observance but nothing else, they were okay with God, how wrong they were. (laughs) Along came Amos, and he stood up in Bethel and prophesied against six neighboring countries, including Judah, his own country. He told them what God thought of their neighbor's evil practices, and that as a result, God's judgment was coming on these evil neighboring nations. Syria was guilty of war crimes. Oh my goodness, nothing changes, does it? Edom, sorry, Philistia and Tyre, they supported an absolutely pitiless slave trade. Edom, Amon and Moab in their hatred had divided communities, stimulated tribal conflict and were into ethnic cleansing. They degraded their enemies and in so doing that, the people they'd conquered... And in so doing that, they degraded themselves. Then came Judah's turn. And Israel, the people of Israel were rubbing their hands and thinking, we're all right, Jack. He's not going to come to us. We're the children of God. We'll be okay. We don't mind listening to our neighbors being absolutely demolished by this prophet. That's okay. Again, how wrong they were. Having got their guard down, Amos sails right into Israel reveals their social corruption and details a whole list of things which demonstrated that they were greedy and that they perpetrated injustice on their people. He told them this, Israel, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. And now to explain our text, which is so hard to understand when you don't see it in that context. Our text from Amos, where Amos 8 verses 4 to 7 is all about commerce and details the injustices that were happening in their commercial practices. They were ruining or otherwise destroying the poor people with what they were doing. They did not observe the Sabbath, but wanted to get on with selling their wheat unscrupulously. They bulked it out with chaff 
and they used dishonest scales that showed that their wheat, which was substandard, weighed heavier than it actually was, and the people they were selling to, their money, their silver, weighed lighter than it actually was. Even worse, they sometimes took a man's sandals in pledge for his debt. And sometimes they got a man in so far debt that he had to pledge himself. And then they had no qualms about calling in that debt and selling the man into slavery. God swore through Amos that he would not forget any of their deeds. And what was the result? Well, within 30 years of Amos' prophecies, the northern kingdom of Israel Israel had been carried off into Assyria in exile. And I understand from what I've read that the Assyrians in ancient times were the cruelest people who ever walked the face of the earth. God had run out of patience with the Israelites. He dealt with them as he said he would. And in our hearts, as we read the book of Amos, we say, no wonder. But I've deliberately used on the screen just now the image of a modern man with Amos's words on it. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. I didn't do that to confuse us. I did it to make us think. And now as we come right back up into our own time, I'm not talking personally here, I'm thinking in global terms, are we any different? I once heard the book of Amos preached through chapter by chapter, week by week, by a preacher for whom I have a very great regard. And at the end, he said, this book, he reckoned, is prophetic of our own day. The year he was preaching was 2007, just a few months before the banking crisis. Lehman Brothers, Northern Rock, RBS, HBOS, Lloyd's TSB, and a few more, the actings of whose governing bodies triggered the worst recession experienced in the UK for decades. I'm going off my script here, but at the time, I was actually working as a corporate lawyer for a council, and I was sent on a course that had to do with corporate governance, And the people that were lecturing on that course, it was at the time of the second bailout. And they said that Hansard, which is the paper in which the actings of the the commons are reported, Hansard reported that the second bailout, the law that passed through the government, the second bailout, went through in 10 minutes. It went through between 10 and, sorry, 9 and 10 past 9 on the morning it went through. They reckoned that the UK banking system must have been within minutes of actually completely unravelling. That was the second bailout happened in January 2008. Then we discovered that the out-of-control debt was in fact a global problem, and words like IMF, the International Monetary Fund, Central Bank, the Eurozone crisis, all became part of everyone's everyday vocabulary. And we got to know names like Angela Merkel and Christine Lagarde, amongst many others. We learned about the awful situations in Greece, Italy, Spain, generations of young folks lost to unemployment, misery, and migration away from their home countries. People starving for lack of food in countries that are only a very few hours distant by airplane. 
and even more unthinkable, people hungry, homeless, oppressed and in debt here at home in the UK and thriving industries such as Wonga and worse. The book I'm going to introduce you to today, I find a very powerful one. It's Oscar Romero. He was a martyr at the, I think it was the beginning of the 1980s in El Salvador. And this book is a collection of his sayings called The Violence of Love. This is what he says. We cannot segregate God's word from the historical reality in which it is proclaimed. It would not then be God's word. It would be history. It would be a pious book, a Bible that's just a book in our library. It becomes God's word because it vivifies, enlivens, contrasts, repudiates, praises what is going on in this society today. Amos cry then, which we hear coming over loud and clear into the New Testament passage and maybe into our own time, into our own prayers for our societal and governmental structures in the UK today, is this, to act justly. Having hopefully unraveled a little bit of our Amos passage, we're now faced with being perplexed over the New Testament passage and the parable of the shrewd manager, which comes at Luke 16 verses 1 to 13. This parable only appears in the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't appear in the other Gospels, and it is one of the most difficult to interpret. Although the commentators argue about where exactly the dividing line is, it does actually divide into two. Verses 1 to 9, or 8 or 10, depending where you think the parable ends and the interpretation begins, are in the first part, and that's the story of the parable. Then there's the second part that we come to later and it contains some separate bits of teaching that I think Luke added on at the end and it ends with verse 13. But back to the parable in the first bit. The audience has changed. In Luke 15 we had the tax collectors, we had the sinners, we had the Pharisees and the scribes. Here Jesus is only talking to the disciples. That may be more than just the 12, but this is teaching just for the people that were following Jesus. But the scribes and the Pharisees aren't very far away. At 16, 14, that's Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees are described as sneering, as sneering at Jesus' words. And I think that may be Luke's way of saying, hi guys, what Jesus said here was important. Basically, the story is about a master who had employed a manager to look after his affairs while he was away. That wasn't uncommon at the time. This parable is linked to the parable in the previous chapter of the prodigal son. Just like the prodigal had squandered his father's money, so the manager here had squandered his master's property. And the manager here was about to be sacked. Some of the commentators say this may have been a business where the manager was looking after the land that was owned by the master and actually what the debts were were rent, rent payment in kind. So the wily manager, thinking he's about to be sacked, says, can't dig ditches, not able to do that, too proud to beg, so I'll reduce the rents and the tenants will think well enough of me that when I've lost my job they'll invite me into their homes. 
So he marked one tenant's debt down from 100 jugs of oil to 50. And according to one commentator, that was an awful lot of oil, probably the product of 450 olive trees. Then quite arbitrarily, he reduces the debt of another tenant from 100 containers of wheat to 80. 100 containers of wheat was apparently about the product of 100 acres. So this was an awful lot of wheat and not a small debt. Then the master praises the manager for being shrewd. And there's a strange tailpiece to the parable about it being good to make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, you may be welcomed into the eternal homes. How on earth do we interpret this parable? Listen to this dialogue. It might help. I really don't get this. What is it? The parable about the dishonest manager. His boss accused him of squandering his property, so he went and undercharged everybody who owed the boss stuff. And then the boss turned round and said, he did well. It doesn't make any sense. Well, put like that, no, it doesn't. Well, let's have a look to refresh our memory. Um, maybe the manager was asking the clients to return only what was loaned and not charging any interest. But surely that wouldn't please the boss. No, you're right. Maybe the manager was in the habit of charging commission, and on these occasions he didn't. He says he wants people to welcome him into their homes when he's lost his position, so maybe this is his way of getting them to like him. Or at least to feel morally in his debt. Maybe, but I still don't see why the boss would be impressed by that. Well, maybe the boss is a wheeler dealer himself and admires that kind of thing. So God's a wheeler dealer, is he? A bit of a Bell boy. Mm, I didn't think about that. You see, it doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe the manager isn't meant to be God. But it's a story Jesus told. Aren't they all about God? It makes more sense if you don't take the manager to be God. So what's it about then? Well, attitudes to money, maybe. Maybe Jesus is saying that we have to make the best of a bad job. What do you mean? Money is a necessary evil. It's part of life and we're stuck with it, so we should use it well. And how should we use it well? Well, we should use it for good, like the manager did when he cut the poorer people's debts. But that's not what the boss seems to be praising him for. True. The boss commended him for being shrewd. Maybe Jesus is saying that we need to be worldly wise about money. We should take care not to be naive after all, we have to live in the world. It's very complex, isn't it? The parable or the world? Both. Then maybe that's why Jesus told it. Thank you. We don't know who the manager was meant to be or even who the master was meant to be in this parable. And maybe, just as that parable brings out, we each have to tussle it out in our own mind and come to our own conclusion. From there on in our text, Luke just offers some additional words of wisdom. I'll try and paraphrase them for us, but it's not rocket science and it won't be news to those of you who've been walking with the Lord a while. In our dealings with money, we need to cultivate faithfulness. For whoever is faithful with a very little wealth will also be faithful with much. We need to remember that true riches are not measured in physical currency, but in what we store up for ourselves in heaven, 
where these true riches cannot be eaten by moths or rust and no thief will come near. Our dealings with money need to be marked by honesty. We need to be trustworthy in our handling of wealth that belongs to others. For as Luke concludes, no man can serve two masters. We can't serve both God and mammon. Perhaps what Luke is trying to say here is to suggest that as followers of Christ, we need to work out what it means for each of us individually to use our worldly wealth in a way that invests in eternity. And how that works out for us will be as individual as we are ourselves. So as I conclude today, let me just present to you some scriptures that are very, very familiar. Micah 6, verse 8. And I'm not sure which translation this is in, but it's a rather nice one. This is what God asks of you, only this, that you act justly, that you love tenderly, that you walk humbly with your God. And another one from the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And finally, can I conclude with a prayer for all of us using one of the very few positive verses from the book of Amos. May we in all our ways let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Amen. We come now to our time of prayer. Uh, some time ago I was reading Jim Gordon's blog and he has this about intercessory prayer which I thought was worth sharing. Intercession is a de-selfing of prayer, a silencing of our own pushy, at times noisy agendas. Compassion is something we feel that only grows towards fruitfulness when it acts. Intercessory prayer is enacted compassion, as important as and never a substitute for costly giving, the inconvenience of putting others first, imaginative action that makes a difference and gives love embodied presence. Put simply, prayer is something we do because we believe in the compassionate mercy and self-giving love that lies at the heart of all reality as the triune God of eternal grace. To not intercede for others, To pray mostly for ourselves, our church, our personal spiritual lives is a failure of compassion. More, it is a failure of faith. As if I did not believing praying for others would make any difference to their lives. This morning we're praying really in view of what we've heard in the message this morning about wealth and money. But I thought, first of all, we should remember what happened in Nairobi yesterday. Heavenly Father, we think of St. Inus. We think of the McClellan of the galleries. We think of Princess Square. And we think of the people who were damaged, the families which were damaged 
yesterday. We pray for all those who are suffering, all the relatives who have lost loved ones. We pray for those who have perpetrated this sin. In Jesus' name we pray. But we pray also now for those who manage vast amounts of money for banks, pension funds, large companies and even countries. May they recognize their responsibility and remember that the wealth is not theirs and their decisions affect the lives of many, many other people. We pray for those receiving and distributing aid money. We realize the temptations that must be experienced by those who are commissioned to pass that wealth on. (coughs) Temptation to just lay aside some of it for their own use. May they remember all those who gave sacrificially to the many needed causes that are in the world today. We also pray for ourselves for wisdom in our decision-making regarding the future of this building. Help us to allocate our resources, corporate and personal, according to your guidance. We pray for all people possessing great wealth. May they remember our Lord's warning about the difficulties of entering into the kingdom of heaven. And Heavenly Father, we bring before you those at the other end of the scale. We pray for those who face the age-long dilemmas caused by lack of money. Can I afford to go to university or must I try to get a job? Do I buy shoes or perhaps I should be sandals for my child or send her to school? Do I buy food or clothes for my children? We also remember the many for whom the issues are possibly not so stark, but just as real. Let's take a moment of silence to pray for the people in the situations known only to us. May we continually strive for a fair and just world in society where these questions are no longer an issue. We pray these prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Amen. May we step thoughtfully into the week ahead, prayerfully seeking wisdom in all our ways. (laughs) 